welcome, Olive. So um, let's pray over you, pray um, a blessing really over you and your family, even as you minister this word. Father, we thank you. We thank you that this morning you have seen it fit to bring um, Olive here and to speak your word into, uh, into her heart, a word that is intended for us in this time and in this season. And Father, as she imparts your words, your grace, your love, your kindness, your strength into our hearts, we just ask that you bless her, even as she blesses us, for this is your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Monica. Okay. Oh, I have this. Yeah. Just talk to um, I don't know how loud it is. It will pick up. Can people at the back hear? Oh, yes, I can hear myself now. So thank you very much indeed. Um, I appreciate your um, invitation, the opportunity to speak here. It's a privilege for me. Um, I fellowship with um, a ministry called Send His Word, and we have a church in Rulaga, and that's where the discipleship school is, actually. Um, and thank you very much for the kind introduction. Yeah, kind of intimidating. <laughs> Too much. Yeah, so um, it's really exciting for me to speak to you. Um, I haven't been to this church before, although I've been to the one in, um, that used to meet at Heritage that now meets in Makindye. Yeah. Uh, now I'm going to use very um, common scripture, and I'm going to talk about being a disruptive Christian. Being disruptive and being Christian. And one of the reasons I use very common scripture that we've read again and again is that I think sometimes when we've read text many times and we've heard um, sermons from it and we've read books about them, sometimes our eyes begin to gloss over some of the meaning of that text. And so we kind of feel like we already know this. We already, we can take it for granted. And so we don't need to do anything. But when you're being disruptive, you actually need to do something or to not do something that you're expected to do. Um, so I'm going to use a couple of examples, but I, I first want to um, take us back to the time and the community that Jesus was born into. So at the time that Jesus was born, the Jews were, Israel was actually under Roman um, occupation. It was part of the Roman Empire. And in, in Uganda, I give the example that it's like having the Buganda kingdom, the Baganda have a kingdom, they have a king, but they actually are, the Ugandan government rules over Buganda. And so while the Ugandan government lets Buganda get away with some of the things that they'd like to do, they'll be happy for the Buganda kingdom to carry on as long as they do not do anything that actually contradicts um, the Ugandan law. So at the time that Jesus was born, the Jews were carrying on with their lives, with their temple, with their worship, with their traditions, but they could only do so to the extent that it, it, did, not, um, it did not offend the Roman law. And the center of the Jewish 
community was a temple, it was a synagogue. It was if you were expelled from that synagogue, your life was over. You didn't have a life in the community. So it was a really powerful institution. And anyone that was Jewish and that lived a Jewish lifestyle um, related with the temple and, and, you know, almost like an umbilical cord. And the Jewish leaders had so much power over the ordinary Jewish folk that, you know, whatever they said, whatever they believed was really important. So if we can recall a time when the Jews got the law, the law, you know, in its various forms, sacrifice was very central to what the Jews did. And initially, they would bring the sacrifices. They would be, so if you were to bring a goat or a sheep or oxen, you would bring it from your flock. You know, you would choose maybe the best of your sheep and you'd bring them into the, to, to the sacrifice, to, as a sacrifice. But over time, over centuries, that practice changed because some people might actually be tempted to bring something that was lame or that was blind or it was a weakling so they didn't, you know, it was something that they wanted to give away to sacrifice and they didn't want to take the best of their flock. So it was to be frowned upon. And so seemingly it was supposed to be a good thing, you know, we do quality control. So this, the temple started to say, you can't, you can't just choose what you're going to bring. You might bring a lame thing. So we are going to have some form of quality control. So there were those that, that then started to, to sell the, the animals that were, had been checked and were good enough for the sacrifice. So they were being sold at the temple. But there was a catch. So the Roman currency had the Roman emperor's image on the coin and these holy leaders of the temple couldn't trade with that kind of currency. They couldn't actually hold the coins. So there was temple currency. So it meant that if you wanted to sacrifice, you would bring your, the currency that you had, bring it to the temple, buy the temple coins, the temple currency, and then buy the sacrifice. So over the years, over centuries, this now became the norm. It meant that actually the temple became the stock exchange, that you came to the temple to buy what you are going to sacrifice. It all sounds reasonable that you should sacrifice something that is good, that you shouldn't choose the lame and the weakling from your flock, but you should come and pick something that is, has already been checked and, and it's guaranteed to be an acceptable sacrifice. But what did that mean? It meant that actually the temple became a market. And, and so when things have happened over a very long time, it's been the tradition for centuries, as are many things that we encounter today, we don't think about, we accept them. We accept them and we go along with what there is. But I, so I wanted to use the example of Jesus confronting this and being disruptive around the traditions of the temple to see why, um, why it might be interesting to be disruptive. So I'm going to use the text um, from John. Two, I think. Let's see. 
we read, we sang something about this. We sang about the Passover. So in verse 13 of chapter two of the gospel according to John, it says, and the Jews Passover was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. There might be many of you who haven't been to downtown Kampala just before Christmas. How, who has been in Kampala just before Christmas? <laughs> who has even been more bold and gone to Owino just before Christmas? So if you can imagine the frenzy of Kampala just before Christmas. Then you might have a sense of what was happening just before the Passover of the Jews. This was a huge feast. And with every feast that had to do with the temple, there were going to be sacrifice. Was, there was going to be oxen and sheep and, and doves and everything. And whoever hadn't sacrificed for the entire year was going to sacrifice on this day. And so can you imagine the businessmen that were around and the forex bureaus that were in, you know, because that was a forex bureau. They were bringing the Roman coins and exchanging them for the temple currency. And so these had grown into robust businesses. So you have the eve of the Passover and you have people that have anticipated the sacrifice, but also likewise the people that have anticipated the revenue that is coming into the temple and into their pockets. And so the stage is set, and Jesus goes to the temple. And then it says in verse 14, and then he found in the temple enclosure those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers sitting there, also at their stands. And having made a lash of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. The sheep, the oxen, spilling and scattering, the broker's money and upsetting and tossing around their trays. Then those that sold the doves, he said to them, take these things away. Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. You can imagine the disruption. I mean, these people have set up their businesses. There's, you know, if business was low, now was the time to pick up. And he doesn't just come and, and express displeasure in a very civilized manner. He actually gets violent, he gets caught, he gets a, a, a whip, and he comes and he literally chases them on the edge of the whip out of the temple and he upsets the Forex Bureau trays and everything. It's, uh, so when I read this, you know, I'm curious. If that had happened in Kampala, they probably would have been mob justice. So I, I'm not sure how they restrained themselves. So he had his, his, um, his disciples with him. But, but see, the temple, I mean, this is where the Pharisees, the scribes reigned. And, and they, their word was, was law. And, you know, if they decided that you, you were going to sacrifice this for some offense, that, that is what happened. And Jesus comes with his disciples, and, and then he does the unthinkable. Very disruptive, on very many fronts. So obviously he was disruptive physically, but what in essence was he doing? He, he was challenging authority. He was saying, the Pharisees might say one thing. They might have allowed this to happen. In fact, they might have set it up. It is not going to happen in my father's house. He is challenging tradition. 
And we know what tradition is like. Even when you might think it, that you, it probably is wrong, something in you says you dare not. Don't even think it. And so you go along. This is not what he did. It, something interesting, almost as an aside, so in 17, the disciples remembered that it was written, the zeal of thine house has eaten me up. Sometimes when we, we read about the disciples, we think that it's these unschooled men. They knew their scriptures. They had, we have all manner of apps on our phones and would be hard pressed to find this verse in our Bibles today. They knew it. When it happened, they remembered that that's what the scripture says. So Jesus was doing many things all at once in this very disruptive activity. And then he gave the reason why. He said, he said my, my, my father's house is not going to be made a marketplace. But then once he was challenged to say, on what authority do you, this? Do, you do this? In verse 19, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And of course, he was talking about his body, which the disciples would then recall later on. And so I'd like us to keep a finger on this and think about ourselves and our bodies being the temples of the Holy Spirit and how we cleanse them and how we, def how we protect them from, from whatever might, might be the exact same that he was fighting. What are our bodies and how passionate are, are we to, to defend them and to ensure that they actually do not become um, something that God doesn't want. Uh, but I'll quickly move on to the second example of disruption. And if we read scripture, sometimes you hear people talk about Christians, um, and it's almost as though we are not supposed, we are supposed to walk around being apologetic and never um, disputing anything. But this is not what we see Jesus doing. Yeah. It, it, it almost, you know, constantly, he was going against tradition, was going against um, confronting authority. So if we see in, in chapter four uh, of the same book, um, this is again a, another very familiar scripture. It's talking about like almost the entire chapter of um, Chapter 4 is about this story of the Sumerian um, that clearly was um, infamous, but it's now famous. So it starts off with this, you know, so Jesus is going up to Galilee. He is leaving Judea, which is down in the south, and he's going up to Galilee, but he has to pass through Samaria right in the middle of these two um, um, provinces. And so he goes up with his disciples and they reach a city of Sikar and so they, they didn't have Uber, they didn't have trains, so they're walking. And they get here and, they, and, and so he remains seated at the well as the disciples go off to the city to look for food. And then sure enough comes this, um, this woman that uh, as we learn later, was somewhat notorious. And tradition has it that the Sumerians, the Samaritans, do not deal with the Jews. 
this has been established, nobody is questioning it, and if you have, if you are either one, you know that you have nothing to do with the other. The Samaritan woman knew this was a Jew, the Jew knew this was a Samaritan, and they should have stayed well away from each other. What does Jesus do? He actually asks her for something, for water. And we know how the whole story goes. And then, you know, so they actually have a long conversation. And when the, the disciples return, they're thinking, again, you know, it's just it's going, to be, he's, he's, he's going to be in the news. He's, he's going to be on social media that this is what he did. And, um, and he's not phased, and he says, you know, and it's, so they want him to, you know, they're creating a reason for him to get away from this woman to say, no, we need to eat and move on. And he's like, no, well, you know, he's still having this conversation. And then they say, well, maybe somebody gave him something to eat. So let's see what exactly he says. So they have this long conversation. And in verse 32, uh, so the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish and completely finish his work. This is the amplified version. Um, King James says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. My meat, my sustenance, my food is to do the will or the pleasure of him who sent me and to accomplish and completely finish his work. So nourishment, what keeps me alive is to do the will of he who sent me. And I'm going to do what it takes to accomplish it, to finish it. And some of what I might need to do includes this, includes talking to a Samaritan woman, includes doing something that I would ordinarily not do, but if that's what it takes to get my father's will done, I am going to do it. Whoever is going to be bothered by it, that is a very small problem. The bigger problem would be that I fear to do this and I fail to accomplish what my, the will of my father is. If we think about it, why are we here? And what is it that we need to do to accomplish the reason we are here? And why are we not accomplishing? What is it that's standing in our way that maybe we need to deal with, but it's going to be disruptive? People are going to be offended. People are going to talk about us. We'll look different. We'll feel different. It's going to be considered disruptive. Jesus was not bothered by it. He said, my food, my sustenance, my nourishment is to do the will of you who sent me. And that is a driving force behind all that I do. And some of the things that I do are going to be talking to Samaritans, are going to be talking to people that nobody wants me to talk to or nobody would talk to. And we see them all the time. We see people that we don't want to deal with. 
but we have the Great Commission. So what are we going to sacrifice? What are we going to avoid to do? Because we really shouldn't be talking to so and we shouldn't have to deal with that. And it's politically incorrect. I, I don't know if you work in some of those spaces where the rules are not written, but everybody knows them. Everybody knows what not to do. And uh, you can't even pretend that you haven't heard because there might have been a few examples in the past of people that stepped over the line and boy, they got it. So now everybody knows, you know. So we, we it reminds me of this story and I, maybe it will take me 30 seconds to tell it, maybe three minutes, I don't know. But, so it's apparently as, as an experiment in psychology. So they have these monkeys that they put in a room and they have a bunch of ripe bananas up here. And so the monkeys, each time they begin to climb up, they are bitten. Somebody beats them, beats whichever monkey tries to, they are badly bitten. So after a few, you know, so every morning they bring you the bunch of bananas, they, but they, after a while, the monkeys get it. They say, you don't. They might look good, but you, you don't want to go there. And now, after everybody, after all these monkeys have got it, then every day they remove one monkey and they put in a, mon a new monkey that hasn't, doesn't know what's happening with these bananas. Of course, the new monkey <laughs> begins to go up. And the other monkeys beat it because they know if, if he attempts it, all of them are going to be beaten. So now the monkeys become the police for whoever was policing them. So every day they take out the one monkey and they bring in a monkey that never heard about this, the punishment with the bananas. And indeed, each new monkey, as soon as it begins, all the other monkeys beat them. So after a while, guess what? All these monkeys are new because they were not here when the punishment began but none of them is attempting the bananas because somehow it's been ingrained in them that, you know what, those bananas, they are there. They are not our bananas. So we become that way. You know, we, tradition makes us that way. Tradition tells us what to do, what not to do, who to talk to. And it has nothing to do with the will of he who sent us. Are we going to confront? Are we going to be disruptive? Or are we going to go along and say, you know what, I don't know the reason. I don't know why the bananas shouldn't be touched. All I know is I don't want to go there. <laughs> so we see this again and again about the reason we are here and why we are not doing the will of our father. I'll use one more example and then I think I'll wrap it up. And this is probably the most disruptive Christian of all time, Paul. Paul did not seem to have a bone in his body that was not disruptive. So um, if we look at um, the book of Galatians, so he, he did so many things, but this, this is one that was disruptive on a personal level. So Paul, uh, we know the story of Paul. So Paul gets converted and he's been, he's been doing all manner of horrible things to Christians. And so, of course, the Christians know about Paul and know that they need to avoid him, that he's trouble. 
but he, he gets converted. And then, he, you know, it's a complete switch and the Holy Spirit works on him and he actually begins to do the exact work that he was fighting against. But the disciples, and now the church is growing, but the disciples, some of them, I'm not entirely sure about this guy, you know, and so they are happy but, but cautious about him. Anyway, so he begins to preach, and he, is, he says I, that my message is to the Gentiles. He's taking his message to the Gentiles, to those that did not know Yahweh, that did not, had not grown up around the temple, those that he says, you were not a people, you did not have a God, you are aliens, you are removed from God. So he is taking the gospel to them. And so after a while, he thinks it's appropriate for him to go up to Jerusalem and introduce himself to, the, to Jesus' brother and to the other apostles and to let them know what exactly he's doing. So they actually extend their, word of, their, their hand of fellowship, they welcome him, they are overjoyed, they, I mean, they really, it's like, yeah, it's a miracle. But then, so he is in Antioch, and Peter comes. So remember, his ministry is among the Gentiles. He is eating with them, sharing everything with them. He's assured them that the way they get, they get, the righteousness of God is not by how they, what they do or whether they get circumcised, it's, the, it's by grace. You're forgiven, you're sanctified, you're, you're on your way, you have, you have eternal life as we know it. The disciples are teaching the same thing, but remember how they grew up. Remember they grew up around the temple. Remember they grew up in a very strong traditional Jewish community. And so, even while they were talking about the Messiah, they knew the Messiah was coming for them. They were, he was the God of the Jews. And many of them could not get their heads around the fact that actually the doors had been flung open and Jesus hadn't just come for the Jews, he'd come for the entire world. And all those people that had not known the law, that had never sacrificed a thing in their lives, they suddenly were on an equal footing with the Jews. This was... I mean, it was as radical as it gets. Peter comes down to Antioch to see Paul. And Paul has his, you know, his core ministers. He has Barnabas, he has Titus, he has all these guys that are moving with him. So Peter comes and is ministering with Paul. And he's also understood that actually our righteousness is a gift. It's by grace. These are our brothers. They might be Gentiles. They might never have been in the temple until Christ met them. But they are, we are all children of God. So he is comfortable with them and they're sharing meals and everything. But some people are sent down from headquarters. We all have headquarters somewhere. <laughs> you know those headquarters people that come down <laughs> with the law? So they, these people come down, and suddenly Peter is very uncomfortable because how is he going to explain that he's actually eating with these people, unclean people? And so rather than create problems, because after all, headquarters people come and go. 
So you can put on your best behavior while they're here. <laughs> they're going to go away. <laughs> you don't have to worry about them forever. You know? So you know they come and you, you say the right things and, and they go and then you go back to whatever you were doing before. So I think Paul, Peter had the, the same strategy except Paul was around. <laughs> Paul was a deal breaker. So Peter comes, so, so Paul, you know, um, so in um, chapter four, no, chapter two of Galatians, Paul says in the 11th verse, but when Cephas, Peter came to Antioch, I protested and opposed him to his face, for he was blamable and stood condemned. Paul doesn't mince words. He didn't pull Peter aside and say, you know what? I know this is a bit difficult, but maybe, how can we handle it so that these people from Jerusalem don't get offended? No. He, he could have said, um, I think we can divide into groups. Let's, let's just have our meals. Some, one group is going to have meals. You have their lunch at this point, and then once they return, he could have been diplomatic about it. What would it have done? It would have ensured that, Paul, that Peter get away with his deception. He was not going to let Peter get away with it. He was going to be not just disruptive, but confrontational and personal. Now, I'm not saying that we should all always be that, but this was Paul's style. And he explained, and he said he was being dishonest. For up to that time, um, you know, he said when certain persons came from James, he, he ate, until they came, he ate his meals with the Gentile converts. But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he withdrew and held himself aloof from the Gentiles um, separately for fear of those of the circumcision. So those that were circumcised, the Jews that were circumcised, had said, if you want to be party to this and to know that you are accepted, that you are Christian, you have to be circumcised. Circumcision was a Jewish thing. And Christianity was not Jewish. But they had managed to say, if you are going to be Christian, you, you're going to be party to our thing. God is our God. We are letting you in. But you better be circumcised. Which Paul saw through in like half a second. So, sorry. So he said, and the rest of the Jews along with him also concealed their true convictions and acted insincerely. Do we sometimes conceal our true convictions? With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. But as soon as I saw that they were not straightforward and were not living up to the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before everybody present, if you, though born a Jew, can live as you do, like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how do you dare now to urge and practically force the Gentiles to comply and live like Jews? So, I, I, this must have been a very uncomfortable moment for both Paul and Peter, but also for those that were around them. For the guys that worked with Paul before Peter showed up, for those that had come down from Jerusalem. For Peter himself, he was a leader, of the church. He was a leader in the church. But I think once they got past that initial discomfort, they were then able to see the greater truth. That you know what? 
this circumcision thing, it is, it is, it is something that we can get over. There is something, there is an eternal truth that is being sacrificed for something as simple as a circumcision. And so for the greater truth, for the deeper truth, we are going to get over this discomfort and accept that yes, some of us were circumcised, some the Gentiles were not circumcised, but you don't get into the book of life, you don't get eternal life through circumcision. And that once we can accept that, then there's so many other things that are going to be consequential. But as long as we are still making this the condition or the prerequisite for becoming a Christian, then we really are not getting at why Christ came. And in fact, he says, if that is the truth, Christ has died in vain. So when you think about the internal truth and what was at stake, then you realize that Paul's behavior, Paul, I mean, I don't think he could ever have been hired to be a diplomat, but he, <laughs> clearly not. But he got the job done and he was honest to the core. Once Paul got it, he was not going to let anything deter him. He was not going to let public opinion keep away people from Christ, keep away people from salvation, become an obstacle, become a barrier. He was going to remove all barriers so that Gentiles could access the same grace that he'd accessed. Now we have that grace, and sometimes we take it for granted. And sometimes we are comfortable living in this grace, and, and, and we say it kind of flippantly, and we say we have been saved by grace through faith, and we, it's, we do not stand in our own righteousness, we stand in the righteousness of Christ, and that is all true. And we've been made this so that we can go and make others that. What is standing in our way? What are those traditions that we do not want to offend? or even things that we ourselves have created. Maybe it's our social circles, we are too comfortable being in our sport that we really don't want to have to deal with going out and, you know, and, and, and being given names. You know, you're Amulokole and you're born again, and they say it almost as if it was an accusation, and you, and you almost want to say, not quite. And then, you know, but that's really, um, the point at which Paul would say, yes. And Paul would then go ahead and maybe be disruptive in the Paul manner, but he would make sure that nobody goes away without getting the message. And as Jesus said, that he is here, that his nourishment, his food, his sustenance is to do the will of his Father who is our Father, that we are joint heirs with him, that whatever Christ inherited, we inherited with him, that we died with him, we rose with him, and that while he's our advocate with the Father, that he is relying on us to carry on doing what he was doing. Are we doing it? Because it's going to take confrontation. We are going to need to be disruptive. And as I say, disruptive is not being destructive. It is being disruptive, but it is actually being, in some ways, 
redemptive because certain things we can only redeem by disrupting what is stopping us from doing the good. So I think we need to be discerning, but we need to be courageous. We need to, we need to stop paying attention to, to public opinion when it's a question of the eternal good, the eternal truths. So I want to challenge us today that while we go about our Father's will, as Jesus was going about his Father's will, and while we ask the Holy Spirit to give us wisdom to know how to deal with the different situations, and while he gives us the opportunity every day, tomorrow, today, you're going to live here, and you're going to have an opportunity to tell somebody about Christ. You're going to have an opportunity to defend someone. To defend someone. I think one of the songs we said had to do with defending the weak. How many times could we stand up for somebody? And we don't, because we don't want to be associated with that. It's their headache, it's their battle. No, it's our battle as well. Christ was not going to walk past that woman being abused. He was going to stop right there and be disruptive. So when we walk by and we let people suffer when we could have made a difference, we are not about our Father's will our Father's will would have been to defend them. And not just go and pray about it. Christ made a cord, a whip. He didn't, he didn't go in a closet to pray about the temple, no. He actually physically whipped people out of the temple. So I pray that this week we'll use every opportunity to be, to be disruptive, if it fathers our fathers here. Thank you very much.